you dream of a classroom where learning is natural? Can we inspire students to lifelong learning? What exactly is the purpose of an education? Inspiring students to be curious, independent, creative, innovative, deep thinking, confident, proactive, collaborative, determined, educated. Rise to the challenge of changing the world. This is teaching. This is learning. This is who we are. Welcome to the Tabletop Inventing Podcast. When is the best time to introduce technology to your kids? Is there an advantage to introducing technical problem solving early? And how do we introduce coding in kindergarten? Today's guest will fascinate you with the answers. And it was always great every year seeing the transformation of the third graders and especially the third grade girls coming in and their default answer was, I don't get it, I don't get it. And then by the end, they're standing up at the boys' computers going, no, first you do this, and then you do that. And just that transformation. I'm sure at some point in our lives, we have all heard the words, you're just a girl. Those four and a half words can be very dangerous. One of my favorite YouTube videos is the like a girl video. Powerful girls have always known they can do anything. But where did that power come from? We're going to dive in head first to the topic of girls and technology. And I couldn't have picked a better guest. Kiki Protzman is a pro in every sense of the word. People call her a technical force of nature. That doesn't sound like just a girl to me. Let today's interview sink down and resonate where it can make a difference in the world around you. So my guest today is Kiki Protzman, and Kiki works with Code.org, and she's very proud of the fact that Code.org actually thinks deeply about their curriculum and that there's actually pedagogy behind it, and we'll talk a little bit about that as we get in uh, to our conversation today. But uh, Kiki also has a great YouTube channel called Kiki vs. IT, and you can look that up on YouTube. She very much wants to see computer science education that is easily accessible from home. And I asked her a little bit about that. And we'll actually, let's just start there. So tell us a little bit about that. Easy computer science ed from home. Yeah. Computer science education is really interesting in a lot of aspects. And the first one is that it's one of the places that you can learn things very fully from home. So there are lots of people out in the industry that don't even have a degree. They just learned on their own from home, and they do quite well. It's full of a lot of really exciting challenges, which means that it's something that kind of spurs you to keep going on your own. Like, it really intrigues people, and it's very motivating. So that's another thing that lets you kind of get into it and just keep getting further and deeper really easily without someone having to force you into it. And because of that, there's this rich opportunity to be able to learn on your own and learn from home. The big hurdle being that it's seen as a really complicated subject. And so just picking up a book isn't going to teach you computer science, for example. You actually have to be doing it. You have to play, have your hands on it, try things and fail. And often trying and failing is a lot 
easier at home. It's a lot more comfortable to try and fail and try and fail when you're doing it on your own couch and your environment is secure. So I really like the idea of people getting involved in something because of passion and then being able to play it out in their own environment. So when you don't have to have a teacher overseeing everything you do, it gives you this kind of sense of freedom. And so the more resources that we can provide to that at-home learner or that at the coffee shop learner or wherever your thing is, the better. And so that's one of the reasons behind having all the YouTube videos and all the online stuff and the different ways of looking at it. It's a really exciting time to be part of this. So as you're talking about that, a couple of thoughts occurred to me because coding seems fairly straightforward from home. And maybe computer deconstruction and reconstruction, like helping neighbors... What about things like setting up networks, things that are a little more complex? I mean, do you guys address that at all? Do you talk to people about that at all? You know, that's a really good question. And I guess in the industry, there is kind of a separation between the IT side and the software side. So often computer science is thought of as kind of the systems, the software side, and then you go... With the IT side, you would have the things like building a machine and putting networks together, things like that. There's definitely strength in knowing how they intertwine and interact. And it is a little more difficult to have that physical need for multiple computers on a server. I mean, unless you're part of a family, right? And you have everybody with their <laughs> phone and their computer. And But even that nowadays with things like Minecraft and learning how to set up your own server and how to manage yeah. a server and and the need for redundancy and things like that. Even that is accomplishable from home. And if you have a goal and a reason, like setting up a gaming server, then that could be equally as motivating. Well, because so, that, that actually reminds me of a couple of things. My son loves Minecraft, and he and some of his friends have done exactly what you said. They've set up Minecraft servers and thought about that. I also had a teenager just a couple of days ago that I talked to, and he likes rebuilding cell phones, which isn't quite the same as a computer. But actually, when you think about it, it's just a harder version because cell phones are a little more complicated than opening yeah. up uh, like a laptop or a PC. Oh, well, yeah. But the reason I brought up the networking is because I actually have a friend, and he got interested in this. And he got his hands dirty by working with like a local professional who did networking. But I was curious, you know, like, have people thought about that? And I, it sounds like you guys haven't exactly addressed that necessarily. But I'm curious, so how big is the vision that Code.org has? Uh-huh. Monumental. So I think that's what gets us in trouble and has started getting <laughs> Code.org in trouble for the very beginning. But it, it's actually what attracted me to them in the first place. So back before I was part of Code.org, I started a nonprofit called Thinkersmith. And the idea wasn't just for Thinkersmith to introduce computer science to K-5, which at the time seemed insane, and it was very hard to get support for. But we wanted to open computer labs all over the nation and have them be like gyms, where you could have a membership and you could go in and use the equipment, and it, it was whatever you needed whenever you needed it. And my vision was so huge, and I was just this little person doing this all by myself, and I got quite a long way. But if I hadn't thought on such a huge scale, none of it would have happened, probably at all. Yeah. I'm obviously, I'm very good with failure. So when things didn't happen quite the way <laughs> I anticipated, it didn't knock me over completely. It just helped me change my vision a little bit and keep moving. That's exactly what attracted me to Code.org. Because when I first got involved, it was just 
Potty, Potty Partovi, had a vision of creating a video. And so he wanted to create a video and get high school students interested in, in computer science. And we got hooked up to kind of talk about where we were at. And I let him know that maybe he should think a little bit more before high school, which at the time was insane. And I feel like he took that to heart, but that's not it wasn't really reflected in the video. After that, when the video became such a big deal, they were like, okay, we are going to make a nonprofit. We're going to change policy. We're going to talk to legislation, you know, have legislation. It was a steamroller. And in a way, that got all of the people who had been working as individuals really, really hard for decades, very upset because their vision was so huge. And they just, like plowed across every obstacle, to, <laughs> which was amazing considering that at the time it was five people. So <laughs> there weren't that many people. It was very small. They were just well connected and super determined. And then one of the beautiful things that happened is they started listening. So the people who were involved originally weren't necessarily part of this scene from the beginning. They kind of swooped in, which I think is what caused most of that friction. But once they started understanding what the landscape was like and really listening to people, their ideas and their thoughts were formed by the people that had been doing all the hard work. And their mission became really to support all of that. And I was so blown away by how that happened. You don't see that a lot in organizations where they're so malleable that they can really learn the landscape and then go with it. And I just, I just fell in love with it. I, I didn't work with them like officially until just this last April. Well, I worked with them, but not for them. So I never would have joined them if I hadn't been so enamored by how big their vision was. They really want every single student across the country, really across the world, even though that's not part of their mission, they want every single student to have the opportunity to learn computer science. They're not asking for every student to be required to learn computer science, just have the opportunity. And they've gone a long way towards that. Just Hour of Code alone has exposed computer science to millions and millions of students. So pretty impressive. I know lots of people that, that like Hour of Code, and I've looked at it. I certainly like it. But I'm curious, how did you get into the position of liking computer science, liking coding, where did all of that come from in the beginning? Because one of the things we like to dig into is what was the journey? How did you get there? Yeah. So like a lot of women my age, if you find a woman in computer science, she probably had an early experience with computer science. And mine was when I was eight or nine, I was at home alone. Well, okay, not alone. My dad was there. He's working. He's very, very busy. But I was sick and home from school, and my mom had to go to work. So my dad handed me a book on, I think it was basic. I mean, it was, <laughs> it was one of the classics, right? And said, here, learn this. And so I sat at our, our computer. We were one of the very few people I knew who had a computer in our dining room. And I used to joke that my dad would say, a woman's place is in the kitchen, but only because that's where we keep our computer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So anyway, by the end of the day, I had written a computer program that if you entered your the color of your hair and the color of your eyes, it would tell you which member of my family you were. And I was so proud of myself. And my mom wasn't impressed. 
but <laughs> my dad was proud of me. It was a big deal. And then in college, I had decided after I got over wanting to be a lawyer, <laughs> I decided that I really wanted to do visual graphics and animation. And I wanted to be that person that made the cow fly in Twister. That was the big thing back then. <laughs> And so that was, that was what I thought. And so I thought I was going to go to school to be an artist. And I only after I got into school realized that, that to do computer animation, you have to, had to be a big part of computer science, at least back then. And I think it's still true today. And so I got into the computer science part of it. And my dad made me build my own machine. And he said if I wanted a computer when I went to school, that was fine. But I had to build it myself, which was exciting because it was a lot like working on cars, but not nearly as messy. So... That, I think, is where the love came from, and I put it down and picked it up several times between then and now, but it's always been in my heart. So that actually, you said computer graphics, and that reminded me of a book I, I read. It was uh, Creativity, Inc., and I'm trying to remember his name, the guy, uh, yeah, the CEO um, of Pixar. Pixar. Um, and he started at this from physics, which is a weird place, and so when you said graphics, I thought you were going to say that you kind of went in from that direction. So. What was it about the coding that caught your attention? Like, was it, yeah, what was it? What, what is that thing that gets your attention there? It was problem solving. It was always puzzles. I was the person that loved to, to figure out how to solve that puzzle. Another way my dad shaped my life is he told me very young, he, he called me Chris. Chris, the thing you're going to do when you grow up probably hasn't even been invented yet. And <laughs> Hearing that when I was young really made me embrace the fact that I could do things that maybe other people hadn't paved the way for yet. And so when I was solving problems, the most interesting ones to me were the ones nobody had solved yet, which it's still true today. I, there's so much I love to do with prime numbers, I think just for that reason. But I think that's where it came from because every day, every moment of every day, is a problem-solving opportunity when, when you're in computer science. Well, it's interesting you mentioned that you like solving problems that no one had solved before because I was just sitting at someone's office the other day and they had a book on math. And when I was in college, uh, there's this little thing called Fermat's Last Theorem. It's a math thing. And there's this guy from the 1600s that wrote this little thing in a margin of a book. He said, I, I found out this thing. And then he wrote, but the, but the margin can't hold the proof. And that little sentence or paragraph actually inspired 350 years of mathematicians trying to find out the answer to this thing. And when I was in college, some guy from the UK, I think his name is Wiles or Viles, must be, he's English, so it must be Wiles. He figured out how to solve this. My suspicion is, is if parents like your dad tell you from the beginning, you know, that you can do stuff like this, you don't get that mental block in your head that you can't do stuff. Does that motivate you at all, like that thing? Of oh, absolutely. In fact, now that computer science is becoming so popular at all grades, we have people exploring this idea of teaching computer science to preschoolers, which I'm all in support of, but I want people to understand that computer science looks much different at that age. Like <laughs> computer, science, computer science for a preschooler is not creating apps that they can share on a cell phone with their friends. The foundation, the real foundation underneath computer science is how you approach a problem. And so even when we were doing this stuff with Thinkersmith, when we were working with three and four-year-olds, 
It wasn't, let's create an algorithm to do this. It was, hey, here's a problem no one has ever solved before. Let's see how long you can work on it. Let's see if you can figure out something. And it would be a problem that the reason nobody solved it before is because it's so obscure and ridiculous. Nobody's had a reason to solve it before. It's completely solvable. But just having that thought in the student's head, wow, no one has ever done this before, and then they succeed, those are the skills that you're building at at that young age. And persistence, trying over and over again, even if there's something making you feel like you probably won't get it, being able to get back up and keep trying. Having those things at that age is so fundamental to building a good thinker and really a confident student. And student in a formal sense or student in an informal sense, it doesn't matter. But if you're a confident student, then your attitude at learning for the rest of your life is going to be much, much different. So that's what we focus on for little ones. Wow. So that actually brings up more questions in my mind because you're talking about pedagogy and how do you approach things and not every computer scientist is thinking about that. So I'm curious, can you fill in a few blanks? Like, So from the time you were in college to where you are now, just maybe give us some, some broad brushstrokes and how you got to that place of thinking about how to present computer science. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was actually a really natural evolution So when I was in school, actually both times, I got my master's in computer science 10 years after I got my bachelor's in math, oddly, but that's a whole different story. (laughs) So (laughs) I gave up on computer science the first time around, got my bachelor's in math, had a family, came back to school, got my master's in computer science. But both times that I explored computer science, I was one of only a handful of girls. Like literally in my undergrad, I was one of two. And in my master's program, I was one of three. So it was really noticeable that there were not a lot of women in computer science and not a lot of minorities in our program either. Really, we had only this kind of stereotypical computer scientist in my my program. And I think a lot of that had to do with perception. So I was thinking one day about what a pity it was that people didn't understand how creative computer science is, because it's really such an art form. It's just as creative as poetry. It's just as creative as painting. And it also has actual utility. Like you're creating art that people can then use and appreciate, and it will help them in their lives. And I just thought if people thought of it that way, it would be much different when it came to recruiting for computer science. But but people didn't get to experience computer science while they were still forming their judgments about what it was, if anybody even knew back then what it was. But most likely people weren't entering computer science until college, at least the majority of them. And then they were getting all of their education, all that first term, they were learning all these difficult things, usually via lecture, usually via old white man, (laughs) And it just kind of perpetuated the same stereotypes and thoughts. And and I was thinking, man, it's too bad we can't reach students younger. And and the more research I did, the more it started to look like the non-traditional computer scientists that stuck with it are the ones that were introduced to it really young, as, as I was. And so I realized that in order to kind of get past this horrible mental image of computer science, you needed to introduce it to them before that 
middle school breaking point where all, so many girls decide that it's not cool to be smart and yeah. math is hard and, and all those things. You have to get to them before that. And they might still leave it during that middle school time period, but they're much more likely to come back afterwards. And that is where I found the power. So I looked into what it would take to get computer science into elementary. And I went to all the K-12 meetups. And the K-12 meetups were all high school. It was high school people trying to get computer science in high school. And I remember saying, I think, I should, I think we should be bringing computer science into kindergarten. <laughs> and getting made fun of. In fact, one of the times I said that, it was Julia from your previous podcast <laughs> who stood up. She had a baby in her belly, and she said, I think we should be teaching computer science in utero. Um, you know, <laughs> that doesn't surprise to, me coming from Julia, actually. <laughs> always having to one-up, right? <laughs> but I would get made fun of, and some very prominent people out there told me, you know, I, I see what you're going for here, but really you should consider just hopping on the high school bandwagon. And once you've made your name out there in computer science, then you can start trying to convince people to bring it down to elementary, but it's just not going to happen. And I remember looking at this one particular lady and saying, I respect you so much, but you guys got this as far as high school goes. I mean, you guys have this. Wouldn't it be great if by the time you had computer science in all these high schools, there were kids who actually wanted to take it? And <laughs> so that's what I'll be working on if you don't mind. <laughs> and, and I did, and it worked out really well for me. So, so. <laughs> along the way here, were you, were you teaching in the schools or were you working in industry? What was, the, what was the backdrop for these conversations? Yeah, I actually ended up teaching computer science to every grade, kindergarten through undergrad. So I, I got a job. My first job out of school was teaching computer science for a alternative school to the sixth grader through 12th graders. And that alone required a lot of educational design because when you're trying to keep a group that broad interested, yeah. that means you have a lot of people who are brand new and a lot of people that they do this more than they sleep. And you have to find a curriculum or some sort of program that keeps them all entertained. So that was the first place that I really realized you had to use games and you had to come at it from different ways instead of just sit down and program. And it wasn't very long after that that I got hired at the U of O to teach undergrad computer science. So I would do their 100 level classes. And we ended up with a phenomenal turnout of girls that went from my class into the next class, which was relatively rare at that time. And so that was really exciting to know that the things that I had learned with the 6th to 12th graders, as far as making it an individual education and treating it more like an art class when it comes to respecting how different people are and what their inspiration is, taking that into college was equally effective. So that was really thrilling. And it was just shortly thereafter that I started Thinkersmith and we started doing classes for K through eight for after school and in the class day. And so I, for four years, I taught at the university for pay <laughs> and I did Thinkersmith kind of on the side and I got to experience what it takes to speak to all these different age groups. And oddly, it was much easier to teach this stuff to third, fourth, and fifth graders than it was <laughs> to 
freshman and sophomore in college. And it was always great every year seeing the transformation of the third graders and especially the third grade girls coming in and their default answer was, I don't get it. I don't get it. And then by the end, they're standing up at the boys' computers going, no, first you do this and then you do that. (laughs) And just that transformation was phenomenal. And so that's where all that came from. Wow. So I'm so identifying with what you say. We don't specifically focus on code. It comes into a lot of what we do because we we do bigger projects. So there's engineering bits and 3D printing and other things. But we like to use the Arduino platform because it's so extensible. And, you know, we can introduce it to kids in a few minutes and then they can spend a lifetime tinkering with it. Like you just never run out of things to do with it. And it reminds me of a story. We had a little girl named Katie in our class last summer. And a couple of weeks after the class, her mom calls up and says, I don't know what you did to my daughter, but she was in the back of the car the other day, and she was the one that was thinking about, I can't remember, I think her sister wanted to be a veterinarian, I can't remember what Katie wanted to be, but it was not, had nothing to do with a technical career, but she piped up from the back and said, you know, I think, I think I want to do coding, coding is a lot of fun, I think I should work for NASA, and (laughs) what you're talking about, I mean, just thinking about that, you know, seeing her eyeballs light up in the class, and I mean, it's true for every student that comes to our classes, that little switch comes on. And mm-hmm. when did you experience that the first time in the classroom? And do you remember that? Well, the first time in the classroom, unfortunately, the first half a dozen times, I didn't even see it because I was at the front of a huge lecture hall and we were teaching our classes where 150 students, that's what I would end up with. And that was overflow from the main teacher, right? So I didn't really see the faces of the students that I was teaching. It wasn't until later that students would come back to me and say, hey, because of you, I decided to become a computer scientist. Or because of your class, I decided to go all the way through and change my major. And those things, I still, when I hear them, I get, I get the chills. And unfortunately, those moments of seeing them get it and seeing it click wasn't happening there. Although I certainly saw it with the younger kids, especially in the after-school club. And it's crazy how you see it with almost every single one. There's kind of a right way and a wrong way to mix girls and boys in after-school, right? (laughs) And depending on whether you do it the right way or the wrong way, you get a varying level of girls really clicking with it. But uh, I am a fan of blending. Uh, I know a lot of people are, are all for having a girls' club so that they can feel secure. At some point, you have to have a blended environment where it's intentionally blended and you're sharing good practices about working together because otherwise diversity just becomes hard. But when you're in those groups, the tendency for a girl to sit back and let the boys do it because the boys want to do it really badly, it's there. And so being able to make sure that you're facilitating that everybody gets to drive mentality and uh, this is a safe space and everyone will make mistakes and it's perfectly okay to make mistakes. It is not okay to make fun of people over mistakes kind of mentality. That, that is where all of that power comes in. So if you can give everybody the feeling that it's okay to try and fail, even in front of boys, because boys are going to try and fail and they're not going to take any skin off their nose for it. So that's where you start to get the power coming from the girls. And it's just a beautiful thing because that carries over. It's not like from then on the girl is only going to be powerful when it comes to computer clubs, you know? (laughs) 
she's going to start thinking differently about her ability to do math when boys are watching and about her ability to read out loud when boys are watching. And it's a confidence thing that carries through all around. I kind of wish I had been paying more attention when Katie was in the class because she was actually in a group with two other boys in their inventor group. And somehow she owned the computer. I'm not sure how it happened, but she started coding and she wouldn't let anyone else near the computer. She just she just took that thing on like like it was life or death. And she mm-hmm. figured it out. She got everything working. You know, so the boys ended up having to do other parts of the project. I don't actually remember what I remember actually is most of the way through the class she was just there at the computer the whole time. And I don't know what sparked that, but listening to you and actually having watched this in our own classes, that confidence piece is very important. I wish I knew exactly how to communicate that better to people, but uh, certainly people like yourself have experienced it and seen it. And it's it's really important. It's true for boys as well as girls, but there is that societal thing of, you know, the boys go in and, you know, they tend to take over. Uh, we have definitely see that. And so, like you said, we were very careful about how we arrange the groups. What was, I mean, was your early experiences... Is that kind of what carried you through all of that? Because I'm sure that this happened to you along the way at different points. And what was the shift for you? Was it that time at home programming on the computer? or? Yeah, actually, it absolutely was. And here's why. I have two sisters, and we had one computer. Computers were not cheap back then, and they weren't plentiful. You know, you had maybe one person in on your block had one, you know. And there were the three girls, and so we would take turns. And then during my turn, if something happened and I couldn't figure out how to fix it and I would call my dad to help me, he would sit down and take over the computer and I wouldn't see it again. I would I would be done for the day, right? So somewhere along the way, I got this idea of, you know, if I just figure out how to fix it, my dad will never know and I'll get to keep playing on the computer. And And I think that, it's little things like that that really color somebody's idea of what's okay for them to tackle and what's not okay for them to tackle, right? Some girls and some boys feel like this is such a fragile machine. It's so expensive. I don't know what to do. I need to be safe and let someone else take over so that I don't break it. And other people have that feeling. I've been told this is okay. I've been told I can mess with it. I've been told that if it breaks, we can always fix it. So I'm just going to go for it. And I think I very quickly fell into that latter category of just go for it. So interesting story. And this is one that really made me understand how everybody's individual history and emotion kind of comes into their coding. I had a student when I was teaching undergrad and she was a returning student. She was in her 40s and she was really smart, and she knew all the answers in class, but her code was weak, and it was not complete most of the time. And I remember thinking, I need to find out what's up with her. So I pulled her aside after class one day and sat down to talk to her, and it turns out she had an extreme fear of using the computer. So she was borrowing her her son's computer for this class and she told me a story about when she first used a computer it was her ex-husband and she spilled something on it and he beat her severely and yeah and it just put this fear of the machine in her 
because she felt like it was this very delicate thing she had to be very careful with, that she could break easily, and she would be in big trouble if anything happened. So as far as learning about it, she was all over it. But as far as doing it in practice, she had this mental hurdle she needed to jump in order to get past it. And we had a talk about it, and she was able to go talk to her son about having permission to be a little less careful, I guess, with his machine and just open her mind up to being able to play with it. And and she did get better. I doubt that the mental blocks were ever fully removed, but different experiences for different people really come into their own ability to believe in what they can do. And understanding that is one of the most powerful arguments for reaching students younger before they have time to form the negative association with technology. They need to have an opportunity to have some positive ones. Well, I can definitely tell that I could take this interview on for about another hour or two because I'm having a lot of fun. But we are going to have to wrap it up. And I have two questions I always ask toward the end. And the first one, we'll just jump right in. In the digital age, and you're very comfortable with the digital age, what does it mean to be educated? We'll put quotes around that word educated. Define that for us in this context. I'm not sure if anybody is truly educated because that feels like an end point, right? Uh, (laughs) I, I think that in my opinion, it means knowing enough and truly understanding enough to be able to do what you need to do to be successful in your life. So that looks different for different people. But like if what you do is you cook, then you need to know enough about the chemistry behind cooking and baking and the proper heat temperatures and all of those things. And if what you do is computer science, you need to understand the, the fundamentals and how the, the ramifications of what you're doing and the choices you're making. It's a very intimate thing per person, I think, but it definitely means that you have to understand all the variables that go into doing what you need to do. Excellent. Well, the last question is more of a philosophical question, and I get lots of answers to this. And it's a simple one but it goes deep. What is the purpose of an education? Why educate? I love this question. I think that, well, okay, I'm going to come at this from two angles. One of them is it's your duty to society. (laughs) Uh, If we have a lot of people walking around who are just wholly uneducated on most things, society will be very dangerous. Because if you don't understand what your actions create for other people, or what other people's actions could create in your world, if you don't understand how that plays together, then there's unnecessary chaos introduced there. So I educate so that people can have more pleasant interactions and more pleasant lives overall. But as far as seeking an education, there really is this idea that none of us are ever finished. And if we believe that, oh, I didn't learn that when I was young, and so the ship has passed me by. That takes away power. And so if you truly want to feel like you're empowered and you're in charge of your life and how it's going forward, that you can get yourself out of any problem that you might be put in or around any obstacle that someone else might get in your way, then you have to believe that you have the power to educate yourself out of it. And whether that's in knowledge or in practice, because education comes in both forms, then I think that's the most important reason to continue seeking education, formal or informal, 
just so that you never feel like there's nothing you can do to fix something that's gone wrong. Excellent. Well, I like that answer, and I think we'll wrap it right there. So if our audience wants to reach out and learn more about coding and they want to know more about how to get their girls involved in coding or their boys involved in coding, what's the best way for them to uh, learn more about you and get involved? I would definitely recommend that people shout out to me on Twitter. My handle is at Kiki versus IT, which is Kiki V-S-I-T. And I will answer back at them. Also, my channel on YouTube, YouTube slash Kiki versus IT. I put new videos up there all the time. And if somebody has a request for one, they would like to see me wrestle against some technology or answer some questions, I'm, I'm happy to create new videos. Excellent. Well, thank you, Kiki, for taking time to talk to our audience. These are words that uh, we all need to hear. Oh, thank you very much. This was a lot of fun. I could try to fill the last few seconds of this podcast with how awesome Kiki was, but you already know because you just heard her. Go to Kiki's show notes page now and look up code.org, her YouTube channel, Kiki vs. IT, her website, and the other things we put there in the show notes page. For more on girls in technical fields, listen in to our interview on the Tabletop Inventing Podcast with Julia Fallon. Make a difference. Don't just tell the girls in your life they're awesome. Give them opportunities to prove it.